is there really a place for a pastor theologian? Well, I think so. Or I wouldn't do this podcast. And who are some people you might recommend along the way? I have someone on the podcast today. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. We're the podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, or as we used to say back in the old days at the seminary, theological reflection. It's been a little bit since I've been on the podcast, uh, actually published one, I should say. I've been uh, traveling, been pretty busy. Some good things have been going on, and it's just a... Uh, such that when sometimes when you're a one-man band, getting things edited and out is, uh, well, it's not always on the top of the list. Apologies for that, but you'll be excited about this episode as I have a conversation with Bill Borer. I have never met Bill in person, but I've been listening to he and Scott Jones on New Persuasive Words, and I thought, boy, there's somebody who pastors and has pastored for a long time, and it's clear that he's a pastor theologian. So um, I hooked up with Bill, and we had a conversation about uh, uh, his influences, the influences uh, in terms of individuals, uh, his reading, how he uh, keeps up with those sorts of things, uh, the value in a pastor being uh, uh, always interested in uh, being a theologian and the value that that brings to a congregation and to his pastoral work. So I've got a, um, another podcast lined up. Hopefully, I have it out next week. But uh, thank you for staying with me, uh, subscribing, uh, share the podcast, share this one uh, as well, uh, because it just gives us another representation of someone who, by intention, has decided that they'll be a pastor theologian. So, um, well, w- without carrying on any further, here's my conversation with Bill Bohr uh, on the pastor theologian. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I'm, I'm excited to have a conversation with Bill Bohr. Uh, I met Bill uh, via the podcast, actually his podcast with uh, Scott Jones, New Persuasive Words, and then I have been a lurker on their Facebook conversations, every now and then trying to offer just a shade of sarcasm or some sort of input to kind of get Scott off, off his game, but he can't be startled, and neither can Bill. So, Bill, it's good to have you on today. It's refreshing to have a little sarcasm on our podcast. Yeah, <laughs> I can't imagine. We need a little. We need more of that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> thank Bill, you for thank you for having me. Yeah. Sure, I, Bill. I, I'm 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 fairly certain that uh, good podcast listeners will already know who you and Scott are, but that doesn't mean everyone's a good podcast listener. So, tell us a little <laughs> bit about yourself and. And what you're doing? For, 12, uh, for more than those 12 people who know who we are? That That's exactly right. <laughs> family, all family. Uh, well, um, yeah, I am a pastor at the Feasterville Community Reformed Church. We have kind of a redevelopment project there. That's in Bucks County, uh, northern suburbs of Philadelphia. Uh, I'm also a consultant for the local governing body, which takes in part of west, western New Jersey as well as Bucks County, uh, currently, I'm an adjunct professor at New Brunswick Theological Seminary, teaching church history there. Uh, I do the podcast with Scott. I write a little bit. I have an article coming out in the new Mockingbird magazine. 
Um, and I'm a grandfather and a father, and um, yeah, that's that's kind of what I do. I uh, was a Presbyterian minister for 20-some years. Uh, I was a Young Life Area Director uh, before, the, uh, before I went to seminary, went to Princeton Theological Seminary, uh, did my doctoral work at Drew University. Um, yeah, so I think I've pastored in churches in Texas, New Jersey, and Pennsylvania. So that's... Uh, that's a little bit of the breadth. Yeah, yeah, good. So, so just a, a quick distinction. So, uh, some of, of uh, my listeners might not be familiar with the Reformed Church of America. Uh, so, distinguish that from, say, uh, your your Presbyterian experience, whether PCUSA or yeah. PCA or. I was PCUSA. Yeah, it's it's Reform. I, I say it's Presbyterian light. <laughs> it's the old uh, it's the old Dutch Reformed Church uh, and. Uh, it's funny, I uh, was doing some work, I'd left the Presbyterian Church, was doing some work with some Episcopal congregations and also uh, with a non-denom, beginning to do some talk with a non-denominational church in this community church. They they advertised themselves as a community church. And um, so I showed up for the interview and they started asking me questions about Reformed theology. And uh, they said, do you have any background in this? I just kind of laughed. <laughs> Other than other than being a Presbyterian and having taught it at seminary, I know a little bit about it. Uh, but uh, uh, no, so it's been a great, it's a great group of folks. And, um, you know, I have a, my background is very diverse. I mean, I grew up, was born in West Virginia, went to a little Methodist church there, uh, was moved to South Central Pennsylvania with a kid, grew up in the United Brethren Church, but was influenced by, I mean, that part of South Central Pennsylvania is the northern edge of the Bible Belt, so every possible denomination and sect was there. And I think I was influenced by all of them. And uh, I was an elder at a Mennonite church for a while when I was a young life area director. So I've had a very uh, diverse background. I feel enriched for it uh, very much so. But uh, yeah, I've said, you know, any adjective in front of Christian has never made sense to me. So, I mean, yeah, I I mean, I, I think connectionalism is important. Um, for accountability, even though that doesn't work well most of the time. Um, but I think, you know, we're all sectarians and uh, just understanding that and being aware of that, I think. Uh, and again, and, and, you know, the new non-denominational groups are maybe even more sectarian than, than denominations, although that, that's hard to measure that. <laughs> right. I, I, I agree. I, th- I, think that's, I think that's an accurate uh, description. Well, you know, um, the thing that triggered me, uh, prompted me, was uh, you and Scott were having a conversation, and you made this comment. You said, um, I identify as a pastor theologian, and your follow-up was, and we need more of them. And, yes. and since I had reworked my podcast, feeling much the same, uh, I thought well, it'd be good to have a conversation about that that might be encouraging um, others to make that consideration and investment. So when you uh, have in mind or use that description, pastor, theologian, kind of open that up for us. What, what, what are you, what are you uh, thinking or what, do you, what are you kind of trying to convey with that hyphenated description? Right. Well, I don't mean spending a lot of money to get a D-min. Uh, that's not what I'm insinuating. I mean, if you want a doctor in front of your name, I mean, if you have a real, 
you have a real master of divinity, you've already spent 72 hours in graduate class. And so if you want to pay an institution money for a doctorate, that's fine. But for me, it's more of a matter of, of being engaged in lifelong study. Uh, you know, I think this was, this came from, I think, Diogenes Allen of Blessed Memory, a brilliant uh, uh, philosophical theologian at Princeton Theological Seminary. And, you know, he said, you should leave seminary with lifelong teachers. In other words, somebody that you go back to. Uh, and that I think for me, um, that, you know, that has been part of my, you know, ongoing self-education since, since seminary so that I can constantly be stretching my mind that for me, I'm a practitioner. It's, I'm always a practitioner first. I mean, you know, if you ask me would I rather spend, you know, a week doing research in the library or helping build a hospital in Ghana, I'm going to pick the hospital in Ghana every time, or, you know, building houses, which I've done, building houses in North Carolina or a feeding program in Guatemala. I mean, that's, you know, our church, ch churches, particularly the one I was at the longest, we were known for our activism and our commitment to hands-on ministry. But for me, the best praxis comes from the best theory and theology. And I think a lot of seminaries are dumbing down the curriculum. Um, part of that is a necessity because you have people or second career people who can't, you know, don't have the luxury of, of spending going to school full time. Um, you know, you have these classes at the, I mean, I'm teaching church history for three hours in one shot. These people have worked all day. They come there, they, they can't, you know, they can't take it all in. And, you know, I've even cut down my reading list and I'm still, you know, called the fire hose professor. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I, but for me, it's because it's not, I mean, I, again, I have a high view of, of an academic approach to the disciplines of the faith, whether it be history or theology or biblical studies. But for me, it's that in this day and age, there's even more pressure upon the individual pastor to be able to discern the tradition in a way that, that makes sense for the day to give you some grounding. It's not a matter of commitment to tradition for tradition's sake, but it, it's a matter of a lifeline to the actual faith. I mean, because, you know, a lot of what gets preached out there has very little to do with either the historical Christian faith or often the text that's in front of them. So I think grounding the faith in the greater cloud of witnesses and, um, and you know, that's for me part of what it means to be an ongoing, um, you know, pastor-scholar. And, and also, you know, reading what's good going on out there. But I've always said, you know, if you haven't read, you know, the 50 most important books ever written in the history of Christianity, then, you know, you may not want to browse your local public Christian bookstore or, or online until you do that. Because, um, you know, so much, you know, for, for instance, uh, you know, I, I just was rereading Taller the other day. And, you know, if you want to have all this whole stuff that's going on, you know, law gospel, you know, Johan Toller actually kind of solved that issue uh, and had a, had a remarkable influence on both Catholics and Anabaptists as well as, um, you know, Reformed people, German pietism, is, which also influenced the Wesleyans. Now, you know, it seems to me that if you're interested in, in working that whole thing out, then maybe talk to somebody who influenced several centuries and, and probably has influenced you without knowing you. And that's the book, you know, True Christianity. Now, again, you don't take it verbatim, but I mean, there's some amazing things out there that are, you know, better than, than anything that, um, 
any of us can write right now. And I, I just think that that's, we should be in touch with that for our own well-being and for the well-being of our people. Yeah, you know, um, when you make reference to the tradition, um, we who hail from what are considered free church or low church contexts often have kind of this bristle because tradition mm-hmm. has been vilified as somehow staid and, uh, you know, arid and not very life-giving. But that's not what you're referring to when you refer to the great tradition. No. Um, and and you, you're talking about a breadth. So you just mentioned uh, one, but, but you teach church history. Right. And, and it would seem to me that um, always referring back to what has gone on in the development of the great tradition is really key to keep us from, um, I don't want to say repeating past mistakes, but, but um, well, maybe, I, maybe, maybe that is the case. Well, I think we repeat past mistakes in a different key. You know, okay. I mean, sometimes I'm a little, I think it's, you have to be careful and people throw around, oh, you're an antinomian. Well, no, antinomian is fine, but, you know, you're Pelagian or, uh, you know, people who've never read Pelagius throw that around or, you know, this person, you know, is an Arian or whatever. Well, I'm, I mean, if you know what that term means, then you probably are going to want to put all kinds of qualifiers to it. Uh, so, but the reality of it is the fact, I mean, what you say about the Trinity and what you say about Christology, you know, that's really the foundations of the faith. I think everything else is negotiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I think that's where, I mean, because if you change the foundation of the faith, it becomes something different. Uh, right. Now, you know, uh, Orthodox Christianity may be wrong, but if you, if you change, you know, you, if you mess around with Christology, then you've become a different religion. So, you know, in other words, so there's a sense you can't, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a limit to the deconstruction project. Uh, and frankly, there's a difference between the, to the free church project as well. I mean, there's a sense where if you believe you're part of the great cloud of witnesses, if you, if you believe that you're not the only folks in heaven, then you actually have a, you know, an obligation, an obligation for your own spiritual well-being. That, that's really what being connected to tradition. It's for your own spiritual well-being. And if you're a pastor, even more important, the well-being of your people to be connected and not making this up as you go along. I remember talking to a, a pastor at a large non-denominational church a number of years ago, and he said, well, we, we, he was very serious, and he said, we're beginning to look at the women's issue. Uh, I go, well, what are you reading? And he goes, well, we're, we're doing it on our own. I go, well, you, you do realize you're not the first people to talk about this. Uh, you know, he looked, he was kind of as innocent. He looked like a deer in the headlights when I threw that out. But I'm just thinking, what kind of, what, what remarkable, it's either ignorance, arrogance, or stupidity, not, not to be, not to be trying to learn from, from people who have walked before us. Again, it's not transferable. I mean, I, I'm not saying that it can go piece by piece transferable. That's, you know, any, that's, you know, I always joke that uh, I was part of a you know young group of folks who you know young adults were trying to you know we were trying to recreate the New Testament church and I said we got what we wanted we became the Corinthians I mean you know so you know, I mean so I mean there's a naivete among among you know well-intentioned people but I, I just you know I, I just and I I just 
you know, it's a lot of laziness, I think, in the professional clergy class. Some of it's intellectual laziness. You know, it's, it's funny. When I first got into this work, there were there were lazy people too. I looked at you know you look at the generation ahead of you, but it seemed like there was a lot of people who were always kind of making uh, an excuse for their existence. So mm-hmm. the people had to go to the hospital every. They were always kind of insecure about you know whether you know we really belong. So they would get excited when they got invited to some public forum or you know whatever. They were always trying to be relevant and and things like that, which. Um, uh, you know, to, to me, having cut my teeth working with high school kids, you know, that's, it always struck me. Those are the guys that are trying to act like a kid who aren't really a kid and people <laughs> sleep through that. You know? But it seems like now people just don't work that hard. I, I, you know, there, there, there's a sense where uh, there is not, and, and, and I think part of it, intellectual, the intellectual stuff is, uh, is part and parcel for that. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm teaching, you know, I taught the intro church history class, which is a tough one because there's so much information there. But one of the students asked me, now, are you going to give us a take-home midterm? And I just kind of laughed. I go, this is graduate school. <laughs> and, and, and they go, well, I go, well, well, that's a lot of material, Professor. I go, yeah, it is. And they go, well, it's more than we can read. I go, when you go to the doctor, are you, do you hope that they read all the book or just or just some of it? Do you want them having take-home tests or do you want them really to know the stuff? And the guy said, well, they laughed. They said, well, I want them to know the stuff. I go, what you're preparing to do is as important, if not infinitely more important than what they do. So I, all I'm saying is, you know, that that kind of attitude. And again, these are good people. They're smart people. Sure. Uh, over uh, Way overcommitted folks. But I, I think that that... Um, you know, to me, that's a concern because you can't take people further than you are. Now, you, you know, the hope is a path. I've always been thankful. I've always had better Christians than I am in, in the church. So, so there's people that are, those people, you know, you lean on them, you let them, you know, you, you ask them to pray for you, you try to be accountable to them. But when it comes to theological and sense of the faith and direction and all that kind of stuff, you can't take people further than you than you are. And so that to me is a, is, I mean, it's part of why the church in this country is, you know, a mile wide and wide and an inch deep. I mean, I used to say that about evangelicalism, but it's, it's true about, it's true about all the traditions. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know um, your thoughts and, and, and this might be a good, you know, we always try to find out what the culprit is and, and certainly uh, a lack of say, um, internal motivation or interest in the kind of rigor that you're talking about. But it seems to me that at least in the last, oh, well, since I've been doing this for about 30 years, um, the emphasis has largely been on the pragmatics uh, right. of what, uh, of the mechanics of running or leading a church, uh, managing budgets, um, you know, advising committees, etc. cetera, that, um, uh, the emphasis shifted to what your style of leadership, uh, um, which, which you, you know, rose above how competent are you in um, ongoing learning in the faith. Yeah, well, that's because the marketers took over the world. Yeah. Yeah. And we looked at, you know, the model, the, what was a model for, you know, what became the ideal of ministry changed. Right. So, you know, those kind of those, um, you know, the uh, I mean, you know, in terms of we don't make anything as a country anymore. So, you know, in other words, so it's it's look who are the you know, who are the uh, 
heroes in industry or whatever. Uh, and in this country, and, and American Christianity has always been anti-intellectual. I mean, we've always had that kind of anti-intellectual bed to us, even though, I mean, you know, for instance, the pure, I mean, you had, you know, in, in for all the bad, uh, you know, the Puritans, you know, image they have. I mean, in terms of, there was a period of time where you had some of the most, the most concentrated educated people in America mm-hmm. in the colonies were Puritan pastors. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and that may be why many of the founding fathers, you know, have sour taste in their mouth because those are the people who taught them Latin and Greek. You know? so, <laughs> so, you know, Jefferson and Madison never quite got over that. I think there's early uh, this uh, clergy teaching them their languages and classics. But I, I think, you know, for, for me, so there's that, that's always been part of American, you know, and, and, yeah. and, uh, and frankly, you know, the, you know, the whole populist movement that's, uh, that's, you know, basically running our country, uh, you know, putting the, the whole Republic at risk. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of, that's kind of, a, it's kind of the American thing on steroids a little bit, you know, it's always been part of who, who, who we were as a country. And, and, you know, Christianity has kind of, um, you know, it's hard to know what Christianity has been a part of that, actually. It's been, you know, whether or not it's shaped, it helps shape it, and and that whole ethos shapes it as well. So it's hard to know, you know, chicken egg thing. But sure. So I, I think part of this is just the kind of logical, um, you know, de-evolution of the whole enterprise. I mean, part of it, too, is, you know, the, the, the problems with the Protestant project. You know, mm-hmm. it's funny. It seems, you know, the Roman Catholic Church went into this kind of intellectual shell after the Council of Trent, and uh, you know when you start thinking, well, who are the great Christian, who are the great Catholic thinkers between Trent and the 20th century? Well, you, you know, you're hard pressed, John Henry Newman or whatever, because of the very nature of the enterprise was retroactive hmm. in a lot of ways. You produce some great saints, but you know, not right. not great not great thinkers. But you know, the opposite's true. Now. I mean, the 20th century saw explosion, and and uh, again, I mean, for me, the most some of you know, you, we talk about Thomas Hollick all the time, but there, there's not there's not even a Protestant equivalent to him yeah. alive right now. Yeah. And so, um, anyway, so I think part of that is um, the culture, a little bit of the cultural thing that we're engaged in. I think um, because. It's what our view of success is. You know? mm-hmm. uh, I mean, one of the things I used to teach a class of kind of a, a theological formation for ministry. It's a great class, and of course, then they eliminated it from the curriculum <laughs> at uh, at Palmer Theological Seminary. But it was really as we whatever your discipline was as, as a as a professor, you got to kind of integrate what would you like, what should people read. So I picked out five or six books that I think people trained for the ministry should read, and. One was the diary, diary of a Country Priest, mm-hmm. uh, Benares, which is a beautiful French movie as well as a beautiful book. And for me, the, the whole thing is this guy's an absolute failure as a parish priest. It just turns out he's, he's not as a Christian. And so I think sometimes we need to really talk about what success is in terms of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And that's not an excuse to do shoddy work. Sure. Uh, I get it. But sure. But I think that's part of it because, all right, well, what's, what, you know, I, I mean, you know, it's, uh, I mean, um, you know, the Jesus belt buckle, skinny jeans, and a soundstage, uh, I mean, I'm not sure that's the iconology that's going to be sustainable for the faith, but, but you know, people, you know, people imitate what they think is successful. 
And in the, you know, and again, I I did you know I did incarnational youth ministry. I still do. I mean, incarnational ministry to me is a redundancy. All mm-hmm. right, ministry should be incarnational. So I, I have no problem with trying to reach people where they're at. I think that's what you should do. I, I just think it's a mistake to change the very substance of of what initially starts out as changing the form, uh, and, or in the name of you know changing function, we end up changing form. So I, I think for me. That's part of the problem. Uh, yeah. I actually heard someone argue that we should have more entrepreneurial classes in seminary. I said, oh, my God, that's the last thing we need in seminary. <laughs> I mean, the worst classes I had in seminary were the practical theology classes. I mean, you know, I was a soccer coach for years, and we used to say that, you know, the game is the teacher, okay? How do you, do, how do you learn to do church management? You, do, you learn it on the ground. How do you learn to do church budgeting if you don't have an economic or fiscal background? You learn by doing, and um, you know most of our congregations have elders or deacons or whatever your form of government is who know how to do some of the stuff you don't know how to do. So you know you you connect yourself as people and you learn. I mean, so I, I, again, I, I think all almost all that practical stuff can be learned either on the job and and or you know connect yourself with a mentor who who you like or. You know, go spend a day. I mean, I used to, with my staff, I'd say even, <laughs> I remember the church will remain nameless, but I said, okay, I don't agree with them theologically, but they're good at praxis. Mm-hmm. So I would send a staff person, okay, what I want you to do, look at what they're doing, and then we'll come back and process it theologically. So, you know, there's all kinds of ways to get that practical sure. knowledge. Uh, why in the heavens would you waste money in a master's program to learn you know, how to give announcements or, you know, I mean, I don't, you know, so that's my, I mean, you only go, you only get the academic stuff once. So that's why I would hardly have any, any practical theology. I mean, I think you need a counseling class um, or two. Uh, You know, everybody should probably go through the torture of a preaching class, but um, uh, (laughs) we're talking about another kind of waste of time, but uh, uh, you know, and I actually taught, I taught homiletics one semester, which was hilarious. But um, yeah, so I, I, that's kind of where my vibe, because, you know, most people are not going to, no, if you're motivated, you're going to do it anyway. Right. But your average person preparing for ministry is not on their own going to necessarily pick up, you know, a historical philosophical theology book on their own. All the time. Correct. And that's where, <clears throat> that's right. You know, I think maybe you could provide some suggestions or, you know, maybe some habits to cultivate in that, you know, Teaching is one of those places that always keeps you connected. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but not everybody or every pastor is going to, you know, have that opportunity or even option if it's if if uh, depending on how remote you are. Um, right. But there are things that we can do to cultivate, you know, that sense. And and so you mentioned a while ago, you know, um, here are five books that I think that if you're going into ministry, you know, you ought to read. And, and so um, if, if you were uh, talking to, say, a seminary graduate pastor who had been at it, you know, short time, long time, but uh, decided, you know what, I've really let, you know, my theological reflection go, really, really kind of uh, have, have, have spent too much time in the pragmatics, et cetera. Um, you, you froze on me a little bit. Can you, did you? Uh, yep, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Basically, um, you know, what are some suggestions you would make to someone to cultivate uh, what we're describing? I mean, uh, yeah. you know, what are some resources, maybe even some some uh, name suggestions? 
Yeah. I, first of all, one of the things I did was I made sure that I had a program where I'm preaching through the Bible uh, or teaching. I, you know, I always at least I was always preaching and teaching at least one Bible study. And there were times where I was, you know, generally teaching two Bible studies on some form a week. And so I made sure just for time management wise, that at least one of the things I was either teaching or preaching was something that I hadn't done before. Mm -hmm. This, you know, this began, I began this after seminary. Now I was, I was an associate initially at a large church and didn't, didn't preach every week, but I did have a large Sunday school class and was teaching. So I, I built a library of commentaries and I would make sure that I bought the, one of the best critical commentaries of this, of the book that I was, that I was preaching through so that I could keep, you know, that I could keep learning and, and, you know, it may have been something I, even I didn't have time to take a seminary when I initially was out. So I think programming already what you're doing and you're teaching and preaching to continue to have an academic dimension to that and continue to keep stay up on scholarship, uh, fill in, fill in the gaps of what you didn't get in, in seminaries. You know, there's no way you could take everything you need to take. So I think that's one, that's one program. Uh, I think another one is at different times I've had either, I've been part of theological when I was, when I was pastoring a smaller church starting out, I connected with some other guys uh, they, and well, actually other clerk, they were, there was women involved as well. So there were other colleagues of mine and we got together, you know, as often as we could twice a month. And we would have discussions, theological discussions. We would read something together um, uh, I think what the kind of periodicals, what do you use with your time right now? I mean, uh, you know, it's so easy to just to kind of turn something and turn a TV on or something, but building in that time to continue to read and refresh yourself. Uh, also, I mean, one of the great things about podcasting is, uh, I mean, I'm pretty selective of what I listen to. I'm not, uh, I don't quite have the breadth, but, uh, or I don't have as wide range of listening as Scott does, but I try to learn things through that. So I, I with my consulting, I'm in the car, um, you know, I'm in the car a good bit. And so I really try to redeem that time by listening to things, uh, not just theological, but, you know, historical, philosophical, you know, keep on top of current events. But I think try to redeem the time for that. So for me, your own, what you're, what you're, what you're teaching and preaching, you're trying to find a group of people that can continue to stretch you intellectually and theologically, and then just redeeming your time to try to, to keep that part of you fed. I think, um, you know, and I know there, I've never been a part of one, but I know there are electionary groups um, and things like that. Um, you know, I'm kicking around starting a, a kind of a theological book club for this, for this region um, with the uh, denomination or whoever wants to be part of it. So I think, you know, there's, there's things like that that I've been a part of. Being smart with your continuing ed, taking your continuing ed. Um, um, you know, I think all those are, are things that are, are helpful to do. Uh, do does uh, um, the uh, RCA, do, do they have uh, requirements for clergy on, in terms of continuing ed? I don't know. <laughs> I, I know some. I know some do. So, for you know, yeah, for instance, for instance, I'm a Southern Baptist, and, and um, you know, seminary is not even uh, necessarily a requirement. Right. That's just determinative right. by the particular local congregation, you know. And so, man, when you said 72 hours for a seminary degree, I'm like, golly, I should have gone to Bills. 
I think mine was <laughs> I think mine was eighty eight or ninety two by the time I you know got done. But, oh, yeah. um, it was it was uh, it was quite quite intensive. No, no, as it should be. Uh, but yeah, you know, I for instance, I think like it is part of your call in the Reformed Church as it was in the Presbyterian Church that you have continuing education time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think a lot of people are, are building sabbaticals into their, their packages now. And, uh, and I mean, you can do a lot of different things with that, but I've, I've had some friends and colleagues that are, have used that to kind of recharge their intellectual mm-hmm. uh, intellectual batteries. I, um, I took a sabbatical not, I didn't go anywhere, but I sat in on a PhD class at Princeton. I never took a BART class at Princeton. I might be the only person ever to go to Princeton Theological <laughs> Seminary, avoided a BART class. But I went back and sat down at a PhD seminar, which was great, you know. And uh, and uh, even Robert Jensen came over and talked. It was it was it was uh, it was great. I got to hear some good people. But uh, I think you know you know I think you have that's you know feeding your soul and, and developing the disciplines of the loving God with your mind that, mm-hmm. that the things of the mind help feed you. And, and some people, some of us, that's just natural. Right. And I understand that's not everybody's cup of tea, right. but you know, it's, it's again, the analogy I use, you want your lawyer to know the law. You want your doctor to stay up on top of things. Right. And I think you have to, I think we have to view ourselves. Um, I mean, you don't have to wear a suit every day to, to remind yourself you're a professional. But I, I do think there's something, and I, I was casual before I was in style to be casual. You know, like I would wear a suit for like the first month or so, depending on the church I was a pastor of, I'd wear a coat and tie until I got the lay of the land and I dressed how I really wanted to uh, until they, you know, I guess I had tenure, then they would, you know, could do anything with me. But, um, <laughs> but I do think, you know, there's a, a casual nature which we take our work. Um, you know, one of the things I that was kind of a young life myth, but, you know, all myths have some basis in truth was that we didn't take ourselves too seriously, but we took what we did extremely seriously. Mm-hmm. And we were not that, that group that's overstating because we, we took ourselves really seriously in a lot of ways, <laughs> but, but I don't think I've ever been around a group of people who were closer to that ideal. Right. And I think because uh, there was a clarity of, and a passion you know, you, you didn't choose in those days. You didn't, youth ministry wasn't a career in those days. You did it because, you know, that was one thing the young life, most of the young life people I were around, not all of them, but the vast majority of them were people who could have been really successful in anything else. Mm-hmm. And that's, that struck me. Uh, I mean, it used to be a little bit how the pastor was. Now, I think it's good in some level spiritually that we, uh, now in the South, it's still a little different, but I think in some levels it's good spiritually that, you know, people don't care. We don't have much status as a, as a profession. Right. But um, sometimes I think that, that we, we get lazy and, and, and almost begin to believe the fact that, you know, we don't really matter. And uh, I think that's problematic. Yeah. So um, if you were to try to put your finger on, say what you think are the um, top one or two um, issues that, a pastor theologian ought to kind of, you know, be thinking through today. What would what would you what would you think, or what would you name as as maybe one of the one or two most important things to be thinking through, given our, you know, social, political, cultural kind of context today? Yeah, I certainly think the nature of truth. I mean, I think, and 
the idea of what we can know and what we can't know. I mean, so there's a sense where we need to do a lot of epistemological catching up. <laughs> and, and I think it's okay. You know, it's funny. I think a recent podcast, Scott and I both realized how inherently skeptical we are philosophically, which is okay. And I think that, you know, we both are, you know, we both have been shaped by our postmodern moment. Like, you know, all of us, you can't, right. if you're not in the time, you know, if you're not where you're at, you're not, you're nowhere. So, but I think there's a kind of, uh, there are some interesting ways for the faith to talk about that. And so for me, part of it is um, reclaiming an arena where, you know, faith is seeking understanding of who some and, and helping people to, um, you know, be still and not only know God, but be still and kind of sit down and, and what's really going on. So I, I, I don't know what would be the umbrella term for that, but being able to engage your faith in a thoughtful way in the kind of uh, anarchy that we live in right now in terms of truth and things like that. So, Good. you know, I think on one level, because we always start, you know, Christianity at heart believes truth is a relationship. And so there's a, there's a kind of, I mean, you know, that Christ is the truth. So there's a sense where that's a, that's a really helpful anchor, I think, in the midst of all of this. But then from that anchor, you know, what what do you, you know, how do you hold on to things loosely, but how do you still hold on to things? I think that's, I think um, that to me is, is a critical issue, even more than, I mean, because with that foundation, you, then you can go to individual issues, whether you talk about mm -hmm. everything from sexuality to science or, you know, whatever else you want to talk about. I, I think the other thing is for me, and this is related first, is basically given um, what's going on from technological as well as an economic perspective, uh, fighting for, for humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think we really need a, a re- a, a reaffirmation of a truly Christian humanist mm. idea. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we can't do, you know, I think Aquinas is, is one of the best ever, but I mean, we have to come up and we certainly can be informed, informed by Thomas Aquinas or informed by, you know, the humanist thinking that helps spur the reformation. But I, uh, and there's different, you know, again, you can get different, different life affirming. I mean, I think there's some really, I think, you know, I would certainly spend some time in Bonhoeffer's ethics as well to, mm, uh, to right. talk about this. But I do think in terms of given everything from artificial intelligence to what we can do genetically, um, I think talking about what it means to fight for the dignity of humanity and, and to only do that around uh, individual rights or unborn, um, unborn humans uh, is 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 too way too small yeah. um you know my sympathies have always been with with um anti-abortion uh I, i'm reluctant to call people who who support war and capital punishment uh pro-life right. uh, or people who don't care enough to make a difference in poor children's lives um but um i do think there's a sense where um this is where some of our some catholic social teaching is i think particularly helpful because they speak they think in broader terms, right. but the technology is so is so far advancing, and um, and what does it mean to be human and through the revelation of Jesus Christ? I mean, uh, it's always important to find out who God is through the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I think the twenty first century needs to spend as much time on 
what's revealed of humanity in Jesus Christ as well. Mm, that's good. And, and not, yeah, and not to me any even purely ethical, what would Jesus do? Because who in the hell knows what Jesus would do? Sure. I mean, I mean, his followers never knew what he was going to do. Who were right there on the ground. Right. But, uh, but uh, who Jesus is and who Jesus reflects that we are and can be. I think that's, that's uh, I think we're on, we're on better ground there. So I don't see it as an ethical, there's ethics involved in it, but I think it's more of a, a foundational anthropology. Yeah, good, good. Well, <clears throat> kind of maybe as a, as a last thing, Bill, um, uh, give us your best uh, plea for uh, pastors to think seriously about um, ongoing theological learning and engagement. Just like if you were, you know, you're you're a pretend you're that evangelical preacher and you're making your last altar call plea and you're saying, you know, for the sake of what we do and for the sake of those we serve, you know. Um, well, my favorite C.S. Lewis uh, writing is his essay on weight of glory. Okay. So if you every Sunday or Monday or whenever you sit in front of your people or bring them together, if you are in the presence of a group of potential immortals mm-hmm. and eternity still is at stake, maybe we don't believe that anymore, but I, I still believe it, then you have an obligation before humanity and God and yourself to bring your best mm-hmm. and to give them the best that's out there. And frankly, you alone in many of your churches, even denominational churches or traditions, you alone are the holder of the magisterium. You alone are the holder of, are the conduit. You're not, you're the conduit. Um, Hopefully they will go further than you, but they're not going to get it anywhere else if you don't model it and somehow give it to them the importance that we are involved in a great cloud of witness. The other thing is, you're going to screw up terribly as a pastor, all right? And so at least have sense enough to learn a little bit of something that's come before you, and that doesn't mean going to some sort of how to build a soundstage in your church seminars. Uh, it means, you know, how to build the kingdom of God. Let's start there and then work on your soundstage. You can get that on YouTube. So uh, at any rate, <laughs> I'm not sure if people, I'm not sure if anybody's going to come down the aisle for that, but that's, there's my, there's my best shot on them. Well, I, I, I think the, I think the line is you can get that on YouTube. That really probably, you know, there's things you can't get on YouTube, but you, what you can get on YouTube, just go get it on YouTube. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's the great thing. I mean, that's, that's the right. great thing about the time we live in, you know, that we can, we can, yeah, that's but right. that, but, uh, you're probably not going to get Von Balthazar on YouTube. <laughs> no, you're probably not. <laughs> yeah. Oh. All right, Bill. Well, thanks, man. I certainly Thank appreciate uh, the opportunity to kind of get to know you a little bit better and, and, and talk about one of your passions. And, and hopefully in the future we'll have another occasion to uh, chat. I hope so, too. And I think appreciate your work. And uh, good, uh, the fact that, you, you know, I know, I know of you that you do great pastor work, but that you're going to share that with other people. Good for you. God bless you. Thanks, Bill. As you can tell, Bill is quite generous and kind and uh, also very reflective. So I hope you'll check him out over Resident Aliens. It's his uh, website. Uh, You can find his sermons there and his writings and reflections there uh, as well. You could listen to him and Scott Jones at New Persuasive Words. That's really where they uh, spend a, a good bit of time kind of 
thinking theologically, having a conversation, and they're real, real good together. Um, uh, coming up soon, I've got a podcast uh, conversation with Alan Cross uh, that we recorded not long after he got back from the MLK 50 event that was uh, in part sponsored by the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. We have a great conversation. It has been a little while since, but it's an evergreen sort of episode because this is a subject that is important to Alan. It's always in the news, always in the forefront of what's going on, and certainly we pastors need to think theologically about um, how uh, these movements and moments uh, that we find ourselves in um, are opportunities. And so... um, Until next time, let me just remind you, uh, give us a rating review, uh, share the podcast, let folks know uh, we're out there. Uh, It helps us get found when you do that. And uh, so until next time, this has been Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. Peace. Peace.